Hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Every person at one point in their life counts the cost for something. Whether that's purchasing an item, selling a home, maybe changing jobs, maybe even wanting to hang out with friends or even possibly going to church. We try and count the cost. We try and see how is this going to affect our budget, how is this going to affect our day, how is this going to affect our time. And it's wise for us to do these things. It's wise for us to count the cost for practical daily items in our life. But how many of us attribute that kind of wisdom to our Christianity? Or as we like to call it, following Jesus or having a relationship with Jesus. And I must ask, if you are here this morning claiming to be a Christian, have you counted the cost of really following Jesus? Have you truly counted the cost that is required of you? Or another way I can ask this is, why do you follow Jesus? What reason do you personally follow Jesus? Maybe you remember the moment where you said, that is where I decided to follow Jesus. Maybe what you heard, maybe is what you heard is something along the lines of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And when you hear something like that, it sounds really wonderful. It sounds almost soothing. But when you look at the reality of what that phrase is saying, is it says that following Jesus costs absolutely nothing. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us in his words in Mark 8, 34 through 38. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 8, 34 through 38. And if you do not have a Bible and need to use one in the pew, it is on page 891. Before we begin in our text and diving into what the words of Jesus say about following him, we need to understand the context of the book as well as the surrounding verses in order to understand our text more clearly. And where we are in our, in our series this uh, week is in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is written in the mid to late 50s by a man named Mark who is following Peter and writing down all of Peter's teachings of Christ's earthly ministry. We see this from Eusebius's church history. It's not a chronological account like Luke and Acts. This isn't in order of how it was done in time. But what it is, is it's seeking to be accurate to the words of Peter, and to the story of Jesus. And when you read the entirety of the gospel according to Mark, you will see it's going to be split into two sections. The first is, 
who is this Jesus, which starts in chapter 1 to chapter 8, verse 26. And the second part is, he is the Christ, which is 8.27 through 16.8. This gospel account takes time to explain and answer who is Jesus as it directly impacts the nature and identity of his teaching, which is discipleship. For if we do not know who he is, how can we follow him? How can we be disciples of him? And if we miss anything about who Christ is, his call to discipleship is obscure. It's kind of meaningless and basically worthless if we don't know who he is. And before this text in 34 through 38, we receive an account of Jesus restoring a deaf man's hearing, feeding 4,000 people, and giving warning to and of the Pharisees, and restoring sight to a blind man. And all of these items, all of these accounts that we received right before in verses 731 through 826 point us to the next verses in 27 through 30 in Peter's confession of who Jesus is. This account that we're going to be looking at is also found in Matthew 16, 13 through 28 and Luke 9, 18 through 27. And it's taking place at the very center of the book. This is where it changes from who is Jesus to he is the Christ. We will see the nature and identity of Christ's call and command to discipleship. So if we were looking in verse 27, the text says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And in order for us to understand this a little bit more clearly, Christ is the Greek word which is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, same word, different language. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he's confessing and proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. All those prophecies about the Son of Man, the Son of God, is Jesus. It's come into culmination of who Jesus is. And in Matthew's account, when you read in Matthew 16, we read this declaration of Peter was due to the will of God. This was not something Peter made up on the fly. This was revealed to him by God. And the story continues in verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. After Peter's confession of who Christ is, Jesus starts to teach them of who he is. According to Peter's confession, he begins to teach I am the Christ, and this is what is going to happen to the Christ, the Son of Man. And if you're wondering, why does he use the title the Son of Man instead of the Christ? He's using it to emphasize that he is fully human and must suffer. 
So why would Jesus teach this? Don't they know who the Christ is? They read the Old Testament. They're in the synagogue every single holy day. Don't they know who he is? Actually, due to the rabbinical tradition, they did not know properly who Jesus is. Jesus is teaching them these things because there is a common misunderstanding of who the Messiah would be. That's why we read in verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And verse 32, why Peter is rebuking him. But why is Peter rebuking him? Because his mind, though it was revealed to him earlier that Jesus was the Christ, was still engulfed in the tradition of the common belief and rabbinic teaching of the coming Messiah, which, guess what? Jesus warns about earlier in chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. And we see Jesus deliver a harsh rebuke to Peter. For Peter's mind was not set upon the things or the truth of God, but upon the things or traditions of man. Though his eyes may have been opened, his ears were still deaf and his speech was dumb. We then see Jesus turn toward the crowd and his disciples, bringing them to hear what he will teach them about discipleship or following him. That's where we're going to be in this morning. And though Jesus is not a good American Baptist who adheres to alliteration in his sermons, our study this morning will seek to see the extent of Jesus' teaching of the three D's of a disciple in Mark 8, 34 through 38. So if you will read along with me. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lo- will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to begin the three days of the disciple, what Jesus starts to say is, if anyone would come after me. And we see this as this invitation to discipleship, which is exactly what Mark, the gospel of Mark, is guiding us towards. We have to ask the question, well, what is discipleship? Discipleship in its most basic terms is to follow in the footsteps of the master or the teacher to follow in the footsteps i remember when i was a child and my dad had his giant winter boots on in the winter and he'd make those marks and i would try and step right in to those footprints that's exactly what discipleship is do as he does follow him in every single step of the way this call is a general call to all with all of those within earshot of his speech and for us with an eye shot of this text However, we can't just minimize it to just a call. It is a call, but it's not just that. It is a description of what a disciple looks like. Christ's call to to discipleship demands denial, death, and devotion. That is the three D's of a disciple in this text. Denial, death, and devotion. 
Simply being a disciple is demanding, but the demands of being a disciple of Christ is more than we can account for ourselves. And the first D of a disciple is denial. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And we need to make a a clarification here. Jesus is not promoting asceticism. And what do I mean by that? This passage has been used to promote the idea that a person must renounce all enjoyment of all physical things, including very good things, in order to be considered a true disciple of Christ. Jesus is clear in his language here. Let him deny himself. And how we can understand this is in earlier in the context in Mark 7 verses 14 through 23, Jesus teaches that true defilement, defilement comes from within the person, not outside the person. When Jesus is declaring a disciple denies himself, he is saying he denies self-preservation, self-righteousness, and self-assurance. A disciple denies self-preservation. You read that in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, self-preservation is not just an enjoyment of life. It is a life controlled by indulging in serving one or multiple temporary things. A self-preserved life is far more concerned with victory for oneself now than victory for Christ and his gospel. One who seeks to preserve his or her life is one who is controlled by a fear of missing out or not living the fullest life possible. A life that denies self is one that holds his or her life for the sake of the name of Christ and his gospel. We read that right there, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. It is a life that turns from self-glorifying motives and actions and does all things to the glory of God. If you want to know what man's greatest purpose is, you read it in Ecclesiastes 12. To glorify God in everything. And Paul repeats it twice in his letters to 1 Corinthians and Colossians. The disciple is one who denies himself, but is not ignorant of needs. He submits all things in his life to the Lord. He denies his self-righteousness. See, our human sense of righteousness is fragments of true righteousness that are burnt, ripped, torn, and frankly, terrible. Our human sense of righteousness truly considers oneself to be good in light of only depraved human beings. Our sense of righteousness actually says this, look at everything I have done. Look at how good I am. Look at everything that I have gained according to what I have done. I have fed the poor. I have given money to the church. I have attended every Sunday. I've loved my wife. I've kissed my kids goodnight. Look at everything I have done. Our sense of human righteousness is actually an unrighteous suppression of the truth that God is good and we are not. 
every aspect of our being, mind, will, and deed is corrupted by sin. Romans 3.10 is clear. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one does good. And if you want to be convinced of this, Paul is not making this up. He's quoting this from the Psalms. A denial of one's self-righteousness is a denial of one's good works as truly good. And the man who wrote a majority of our New Testament writes to the Philippians in chapter 3 that his righteousness, everything he did that was considered good in the eyes of man was rubbish. It was damnable and it was detestable. It was like a heap of burning poop. That's what that original Greek word means. It was garbage. It meant nothing compared to Christ. We think we gain much by being a good person, but the disciple of Christ knows his amount of righteousness bears zero weight in comparison to Christ. If you want to put it on a balanced scale, all of your good works can't even begin to even make the balanced scale flinch. There's a denial of self-assurance. We may believe there's no need for growth and holiness and believe we will simply be excused by God because who could hate me? I'm a nice guy. I'm pretty good. The self-assurance of this person rests not in who God is, but in who he is. We assume we are worthy simply because we exist. We may take the gospel's call to say, you are someone really special. Yet our life is marked by idleness, tolerance, division, and wavering, all due to our self-assurance that nothing is to be done. But Christ warns us that whoever is ashamed of my words and me, I will be ashamed of when I come back. Self-assurance does not save me. A denial of one's self-assurance is a renouncing of one's safety in oneself. It is a turning away from our ashamedness of the commands of Christ and seeking to pursue holiness due to what? Assurance in Christ. Our assurance rests not in fanciful argumentation of cheap grace that simply says, look how pretty I am, but it is in the grace of God that reconciles vile men to himself who were predestined and created to be conformed into the image of Christ for good works. The disciple is one who denies. The second day of a disciple is denial to the point of death. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We see Jesus says a Christ follower takes up his cross. And maybe you've heard the phrase, well, it's just my cross to bear. And we use this term as a simple burden we have for a time in our life that is going to be put off, off a little bit more. But honestly, that's not what Jesus means. We have to remember the context. He's, he's talking to people who are living in the Roman Empire where crucifixion was a normal part of the daily ins and outs of life. 
the crowds, disciples, and readers all understood this small phrase to carry a larger burden than we think. When a man took up a cross in the Roman Empire, he is doing so publicly. We like to associate the cross with the electric chair. It has no comparison to the electric chair. The electric chair is private. This was public. When you carried the beam of the cross, you did so where everyone saw you. There was not one person who didn't know who was going to be crucified. And it was an identification as I did something really heinous. I am a criminal. And it is proclaiming I deserve to die. Taking up one's cross is not a burden. It's a death sentence. It's a declaration of an identity that no person, including the Pharisees, wanted to do. To take up one's cross was to identify publicly with Christ, to take on shame and humiliation for Christ, and to willingly surrender one's life to the point of death for the sake of Christ and His gospel. It was a personal death, it was a poor death, and it was a public death. I think of men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale who were utterly destroyed by the British government simply for trying to get our English Bibles to us. I can't remember if it's Tyndale or if it's Wycliffe, but what happened was he was burned at the stake. They tied gunpowder to his neck so it would explode him all over the streets. Simply for believing the words of Christ. Maybe we don't experience that today. But it's going to happen. It's a personal death. A disciple personally dies to himself. It's not a decreased value of life. It's an increased understanding of one's cosmic treason before a holy God. to dying to his sinful nature. The personal death of a disciple of Christ identifies as guilty before God, begs for mercy, turns from sin, and places oneself in full identity with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, no matter the cost. He does it for the sake of Christ and his gospel. It's a poor death. When a disciple of Christ takes up his cross, he dies to all the riches of the world, including his own sense of human goodness and any sense of righteousness he brought in. The gain he could have is of little value to what he has in Christ. He holds open hands to all he has and recognizes it is all God's and for his glory. The poor death of a disciple sees himself as nothing without Christ. And he holds all physical and spiritual provision at the throne of grace with all he has and does not have that is submitted to Christ. And it is a public death. When a disciple takes up his cross, he dies before men. A true disciple cares very little what man thinks of him for the sake of the gospel. It is not lunacy, it's conviction. He stands upon truth. 
does not sacrifice that and he did he says this is what the Bible says this is what Christ says and I follow that regardless of how foolish that may seem of regardless of how weak that may seem regardless if that brings me death I stand upon these words as Luther said in the Reformation my mind is bound to the scriptures I, here I stand I can do no other God help me The public death of a disciple of Christ bears all shame and reproach before men so all may see the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel. But this is no show of martyrdom. This is not to say, look how great we are because we are sacrificing our lives for Christ not just martyrdom, but it's a display of the third D of a disciple, which is devotion. Where Jesus says, after the denial and taking up the cross, follow me. Follow me. Devotion comes as it upholds and submits to the name of Christ and his teaching for all of life. The disciple devotes himself to Christ for the sake of Christ, for the gain of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. His life is now devoted to the sake of Christ and his gospel. His possessions, his money, his joy, his food, his life, his prayers is all laid before God for the sake of making Christ known amongst all people, including family, friends, and co-workers. It is for the sake of Christ and his gospel, as he says in verse 35. A life for the sake of Christ uses all giftings, physical and spiritual, within wise counsel for the sake of Christ. When a disciple does what he does, he does for the sake of Christ. He does it for the gain of Christ. His life is now devoted to the gain of Christ in knowledge and holiness. Paul writes two prayers for the Ephesians that they may grow in the knowledge of Christ and that this knowledge promotes unified living in Christ. Nothing here on this earth truly satisfies a disciple of Christ. Any good gift here on this earth is a means of rejoicing in Christ and every single pain on this earth is seen as a means of rejoicing in Christ because no matter how good the joy gets, no matter how bad the pain gets, it's all about Christ and that's it. That's all he wants and that's all he has. He gives up everything for Christ and all he can say is Christ. That is the disciple. Everything is Christ. That is all his life depends upon now. There is nothing that can take it away. And there is nothing that can beat him out of that throne. Because it is about Christ. And that is his richest gain. And his greatest loss is Christ. And that's it. How does that not excite you? How does it not humble you that the God of the ages came down from heaven to give you immeasurable riches of eternity. A life for the gain of Christ is not lived in hopes of one might gain, but because he has been given everything. 
He seeks to know the depths of the riches of Christ and live more deeply and richly like Christ. When a disciple does what he does, he does for the gain of Christ. And finally, he does it for the glory of Christ. He holds no shame. And he devotes himself to the teaching of the truth and does not sacrifice that truth at the altar of peace, at the altar of unity, at the altar of happiness, and the altar of being politically correct. He stands upon truth as a sword and a stone, does not waver from it, and says, this is the truth. I am convicted. I can do no other. Here I stand. God, help me. He does not apologize for what Christ says. He is not ashamed because to him, the shame of his Savior is far greater than the shame of men. When a disciple does what he does, he does for the glory of Christ. And when we look at the three Ds of a disciple, we see this is not an easy call. We see this is calling us to our deaths. God called us through His Son to deny, die, and devote, to be a true disciple. And this brings us to ask, what kind of man would do such a thing? Unless we forget the Son of Man who did not merely call those who will listen but fulfill the calling He has made. Because guess what? Our denial depends upon Christ's suffering and rejection. Not only did Christ deny His personal safety, but He was rejected by His own people, even His own elders. When you read verse 31, Jesus says, it says, And He, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Christ suffered publicly for the sake of the elect. Christ was rejected by those who should have accepted Him freely. Christ did not live an easy life, nor did He live His best life now. His life was meant for the cross. As the prophecy in Isaiah 53 states, he was despised and rejected by men and we esteemed him not. If Christ did not endure suffering and rejection, we would be totally unable to deny ourselves. For how could we follow the command of Jesus to deny ourselves when he would have lived his best life now? No, friends. We deny ourselves as Christ was denied before his own. Also, death depends upon Christ's sacrifice. Christ's denial led to his willing sacrifice of his life at the hands of men and the wrath of God in order to fulfill God's holiness and justice. Christ died publicly and horribly at the submission of the Father's will and for the sake of his people's reconciliation with the Father. His not-so-wondrous life led to a vicious and public death. If Christ did not truly die willingly, we would be totally unable to take up our cross as there would be no atonement for sin and we would have no hope in life and death. The greatest healing did not come by naming it and claiming it, but through the giving of life on the cross. 
we die to our sin and give our lives fully to God as Christ bore the curse of sin and wrath of God on our behalf. And finally, our devotion depends upon Christ's resurrection and his second coming. When you read in verse 31 as well, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Rejection and death are not the end. Christ has defeated sin's champion. On the third day, death could not hold the final word as Christ rose victorious over our greatest enemy's champion, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again. Christ's public resurrection and promised public and glorious second coming is the assurance of his victory. He graciously promises us and gives to us. If Christ did not truly rise from the dead, we would be totally unable to be devoted to him as he would still be in the grave and in effect, so would we. And if Christ did not promise to come back, we would also have no reason to be devoted to him as obedience would be meaningless and hopeless as we would have no assurance. To be a disciple is to follow in the footsteps of the master. A disciple of Christ can be one who denies, dies, and devotes only because of the eternal determining work of Christ's footsteps. When you read in Hebrews that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, it means he suffered, died, buried, and rose again on the third day. That is what he calls you to. He is able to do his part because Christ has fulfilled every condition, every clause, every iota, and every dot. His preservation, righteousness, assurance, identity, sake, gain, and glory are secured by the promise of God in Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. A disciple lives to Christ and dies to Christ because he is Christ's and not one thing visible or invisible can separate him from the loving grasp of the Almighty who was and is and is to come. Is that evident in you? Is Christ truly worth dying for? To the Apostle Peter, he was. We must remember that this is Mark's written account of what Peter was saying. Do you know what happened to Peter? After what we read in the text of Scripture? He was condemned by the government and sentenced to death on a cross for preaching the gospel. And out of feeling inferior to his Savior, his final request was to be crucified upside down for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Is Christ truly worth dying for? To Pastor Wang Chi in China, he is. Recently, our brother in the Lord, Pastor Wang Chi in China, was arrested for preaching the same message of the gospel that our Lord has taught us in his word. He preached that all, including China's leader, must repent and believe in the name of Christ in order to be saved, lest 
they perish. You want to know where Brother Chi is right now? Separated from his wife and children and being tortured by the government for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Is Christ truly worth dying for? What about you? Peter and Paul tell us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. In their second letters, 2 Corinthians and 2 Peter. So what about you? Why do you follow Jesus? Is Jesus a mere house guest you invited in at one point in your life? And you only continuously invite back for an hour 30 every week? And then send him on his merry way? Do you follow him because it's tradition? Do you follow him because it helps you cope? Do you follow him because it makes you feel good? Or do you follow him because you say, well, I'm good enough for him. Might as well. Or do you follow him because he is the king? Jesus is not a house guest. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the name above all names, the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the King who is coming again. That is why we follow Him. Do you follow Him because He is the second person of the triune God who was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, suffered and was crucified at the hands of men, crushed by the wrath of God, was buried, rose again on the third day, and is coming again in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you follow him for that? Do you follow him because he is? And none can stand to him. Not even you. Not even your works. Not even the devil himself. Friends, following Jesus is far more profound and far more glorious than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God has shown his love for you in the glorious display of wrath and grace upon the cross of Christ and through Christ's work alone. God has a wonderful plan for your death. What's that wonderful plan? Eternal, reconciled presence with Him. And He calls you to Himself this day. This is not a request of a house guest. This is the decree of a king. Today is the day of salvation, friends. Today is the day of salvation. We have been given sufficient revelation in the word of God to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. We not know the day or the hour of his coming, but we know this. He does stand at the door and knocks. And you want to know what that actually means in context? It means he's coming back in righteous judgment and final redemption. It's not a permission thing. It is a decree of the king that he is coming back. Are you ready? 
Is denial, death, and devotion evident in our lives, or is it mere lipstick on a pig? Is Jesus really worth dying for? There will come a time, friends, where the government may look back on this message that is recorded and put on the internet, and they may find me and they may kill me, and so be it. If I can be accursed by this government, so be it. If I can be accursed by any of you in here, so be it. Because you can't take Christ. You cannot touch the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. You cannot touch the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why do you follow Jesus? Is Jesus truly worth dying for? Friends, this is the cost of discipleship. Everything. But this is the promise of discipleship. Christ. I implore you then to hear the words of your Savior. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This is the decree of the king we read. Lord, work in our hearts to be more passionate about your truth. To not waver. To stand upon your word. May that impact every aspect of our lives. And may we, we give the reason for our hope, Christ. As we examine ourselves to see why we follow you, may we see the truth of why we follow you. May that bring us to repentance and faith. May that increase the joy we have in you. I pray this in your holy name.